The scripture reading today is from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 25 and going through verse 32. Psalm 119, 25 to 32. Remember, as I read and as you listen and follow along, this is God's word. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melt away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's, we are grateful for your word. It is the sword of the spirit, the very breath of your mouth. And so we pray that you would take this living word and do your work in our hearts even now by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2016, Psychology Today magazine ran a feature using language that has become increasingly popular in our culture today. Here's the title of the article, Seven Ways to Get Yourself Unstuck. And that terminology of being stuck and getting yourself unstuck, actually, now, if you were to search for it, is increasingly proliferated, even since 2016. I want to read you the beginning of the article. This is how it starts. It's easy to get in a rut. Maybe you have goals, but for some reason you're not reaching for them. Maybe self-judgment is causing you to lower your expectations or low self-worth is preventing you from making positive changes. You also get stuck in worry, afraid to make a decision or change something in your life. Or maybe you're disappointed with how a particular situation turned out and it just feels too hard to move on. Well, there's all kinds of assumptions implicit in that paragraph, as you probably picked up on. It's, there's no question as you read the article that the author is going to try to make the point that the real problem with being stuck is low self-worth or low expectations or worry or some kind of disappointment with a particular situation. And that's going to be the nature of the solutions offered in seven ways to get yourself unstuck. But nonetheless, this notion of being ground down, of being stuck both spiritually and in some cases it may feel in terms of your life, isn't a wholly unbiblical concept, although the way it's being used today is often based on unbiblical assumptions. In fact, this notion of being stuck, sort of stuck in a rut or not able to move forward actually captures quite well the sentiment of verse 25 of this Daleth section of Psalm 119. He says this, my soul clings to the dust. It is actually stuck in the dust. One Jewish commentator commenting on the phrasing used by the psalmist puts it this way. This section begins in verse 25 with the paradox that the soul of the petitioner is literally stuck fast. 
so that he cannot move and cannot advance on the way of life because he's surrounded by death. Charles Bridges puts it this way when commenting on the status of the psalmist as expressed in verse 25. He knows what he ought to be, but every attempt to rise is hindered by the clogging weight that keeps him down. That's how this section of Psalm 119 begins. My soul clings to the dust. My soul is stuck in the dust. Every attempt to rise is hindered by the clogging weight. Now, I want to contrast that with the end of this section. Look at verse 32 of this same section. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The question we have to ask, the question that immediately presents itself when we come to this section of Psalm 119 is, how is it that the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moves from the situation described in verse 27, where he's stuck, clinging to the dust, perhaps because of his sin, or perhaps because of the, the weight of all the circumstances that surround him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't make it clear. But how does he move from that situation to the description in verse 32, where not only is he now unstuck, he's actually running in the way of the commandments of God. The, the contrast couldn't be more striking. It couldn't be more sharply put between the situation at the beginning and the situation with which this section ends. Now, the key, I think, to understanding this comes in a word that the psalmist repeats over and over again. Five times he repeats this term in this section as he moves from being stuck to running in the commandments of God. And, and the term that he uses is in keeping, of course, with this Daleth uh, uh, um, uh, letter with which he begins these lines. And, that, and that's the word for way or path. The Hebrew word derek is, is what makes up the, the, the superstructure of this psalm. And, and so as we, as we see the psalmist move from being stuck to running in the commandments of God, we see him progress, as it were, by the use of five ways, five times that he employs this term. And I think these, the use of this term uh, shows us the progression, shows us how it is that the Lord moves him from stuck to running. Now let's look at the first one, the first way. It's in verse 26. As he clings to the dust, he then reflects on this in verse 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. First use of this key term way, which is the backbone of the psalm, is, is referring to his own ways, uh, the, the things going on in his own life. He, he confesses. To the Lord, he confesses in this prayer both his sin and, and perhaps also his weariness and his discouragement. That's really the first step here. As he's, as he's stuck, what he does, first of all, is he describes how he told the Lord 
the situation he was in. And again, the, the psalmist is unclear about whether this has to do with the burden of his own sin, the burden of his own lack of sanctification, or whether it simply has to do with the circumstances which have befallen him. Whatever the case, he brings it to the Lord. He tells the Lord of his ways. We're reminded perhaps of what we read in Psalm 32 regarding confession of sin. You remember what the psalmist says there. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If it be the case that the psalmist is struggling because of his own sin, if he is conscious in verse 25 of what Paul says in Romans 7, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing, wretched man that I am. If that's what's behind it, if there's a sin issue, he's he's confessing it to the Lord in verse 26. If it's simply circumstantial, then we would say that what he's doing here is less analogous to Psalm 32 and more analogous to 1 Peter 5, that verse that we were reminded of so eloquently yesterday in chapel, where Peter tells believers to be casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And if you remember our preacher yesterday reminded us that these burdens that were given, these crosses that we sometimes say are ours to bear, are not in fact ours to bear because we're to cast these burdens upon the Lord. We have to be, we have to persevere. We have to be faithful. We have to be diligent in the midst of hard, of hard things, but, but we're casting our burdens on the Lord. And, and that's at least what's happening in verse 26. Charles Spurgeon addresses this verse with respect to sin. And he says this, open confession is good for the soul. Nothing brings more ease and more life to a man than a frank acknowledgement of the evil which has caused the sorrow and the lethargy. And you see, this is what the psalmist is doing first. The psalmist is first reminding us of our need uh, to confess, to, to tell the Lord of our ways. And look at this. Glorious second line in verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Remember again, Psalm 32, which I quoted from just a minute ago. After the psalmist talks about his bones wasting away and the Lord being heavy upon him until he confessed his sin, he then says this, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Is this, is this you this morning? Are you stuck in sin or perhaps just stuck in the midst of the difficulties of life? Feel like every time you think you've broken free, something else emerges to bring you back down to the dust. Well, One of the things that we learn from the scriptures is that the first antidote to this, in a sense, our first recourse in the midst of this is to go to the Lord, tell him our ways, confess our sin if necessary, cast our burdens on him. In any case, 
And, and, and when we do, we can be confident because of the promises of Scripture that our testimony will be the same as the psalmist's testimony when he says, when I told of my ways, you answered me. And so then the, the natural implication of that comes in the third line of verse 26, which is if the Lord responds in that way to his people, and he does, if you are in Christ, if you are God's child, he treats you with a fatherly care. He tells you to bring your burdens to him. He tells you to come to the throne of grace to find grace to help in your, in your time of need. He tells you to come and confess your sins to him freely and openly. And if you are in Christ, he will answer. And so the natural implication of that is the psalmist crying out, now teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes that I may live. And that brings us to the second way. The first way is the psalmist's way, which he is bringing to God. The second way is in verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Now, as we've seen in this psalm already, the, the psalmist has a clear understanding that he needs the word of God. He needs God himself to minister to him. He needs the statutes of God to guide his life. But what's clear in verse 27 is the psalmist recognizes not only his need for the statutes of God, but his need for God to teach him, God to minister to him. In a sense, what the, what the psalmist is really saying is he's saying, I need the Holy Spirit to illumine my mind as I read the word of God. And so after giving these things over to God, asking God to teach him, he then says to the Lord, make me understand the way of your precepts. You see, studying the Bible isn't merely an intellectual exercise. It, it, it is that, of course. It, it involves our intellect. But ultimately, whenever you open your Bible, even if you're just looking up a text to, to include it in a paper or, or, or looking up a text because you need to answer a question, even, even in something that seemingly perfunctory, whenever you open God's word, it's a spiritual exercise. It's, it, it, we have to bear in mind when we open the word of God, the natural man receiveth not the things of God for they are spiritually discerned. Confession of weakness comes first, and then a cry to God that God would teach him as he opens up his word. Now, I want to say this especially to those of you who are either in pastoral ministry or training to be in pastoral ministry. John Calvin has a whole section on this verse and applies it directly to pastors. And here's what he writes. It is impossible for us to instruct others, except we have been before the disciples and scholars of God. And then he goes on to say this about the order. Let us then consider the order which is here observed, that every one of us do acknowledge our own ignorance. And then he goes on to say this, even though the psalmist had the word of God, he wasn't actually asking for a copy of the Bible because he had it in front of him. But even though he had a copy of God's word in front of him, he, he, Calvin says this, quote, he knew well enough 
that to read, to preach, and to hear was not all that was needful. For unless God opens our ears, we shall never be able to understand it. So do you have this attitude in yourselves? As expressed in verse 27. Do you know this to be true about your reading and preaching of God's word? Are you praying while you study? I'm reminded that of that quote that B.B. Warfield gives in his little essay, The Relig Religious Life of Theological Students. And he says this, sometimes we hear that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. And you know what Warfield says, what? How about 10 hours over your books on your knees? In other words, the attitude of the psalmist is to be our attitude when we open God's word. We know this; these are spiritual matters. We're treading on holy ground. We cannot teach others unless we ourselves have first been taught by the living God. And so he cries out, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Now, the next way provides the structure for this psalm actually comes in verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. There's one thing that's clear in the New Testament. It should be clear from the Old Testament as well. In fact, the New Testament builds on the Old Testament example to make this very point. It's that, it's that false teachers are everywhere. False teachers. There are false teachers within the church. There are certainly false teachers outside of the church. The, the, the scriptures tell us that just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, and there were many. You remember Micaiah ben Imla? He was one against 400. The proportions there were not good. Just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there will be false teachers even now. I was speaking with a woman after preaching in Texas last spring, and she was describing to me her testimony of how the Lord saved her, and it was it was profound. It was it was a significant it was a significant change in her life that had taken place. So she was describing that, and how it connected to some of the things on which I had just preached. And she she talked about how when when the Lord opened her eyes to the truth of the gospel to the glory. Christ and she was saved and she was forgiven of her sins and she knew it. And that happened actually just from her reading of the Bible. But she said, then I, then I had to find a church and, and she put it this way. I'll never forget how she put it. She said, and you know, if you don't know anything about the scripture, she had not been raised in a Christian home at all. She said, if you don't know anything and all you have is your Bible and you're just saved, she said, there's, there's a, there's a heresy on every corner. And there is, there's a heresy on every corner. And so the writer here, the psalmist wants to make sure that false ways are put far away from him. The Apostle Paul reminds us that after he leaves, he says to the Ephesian elders, some among your own selves will arise, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul describes them to Titus on Crete and says they profess to know God but they deny him by their words. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. But remember, they professed God. 
Spurgeon puts it this way when describing what the psalmist is asking for. He feared that a measure of falsehood would cling to him unless the Lord took it away. And therefore, he earnestly cried for its removal. Consider even yourself five years ago or 10 years ago. And think about the things that, by God's grace, you've learned and been taught from the scriptures, the changes that have taken place in your thinking and in your theology. And then just ask yourself what it would be if you were to have entered a teaching role, a teaching office, and had taught those things that you now look back and know to be deficient in some way. What a great tragedy that would be, more than a tragedy. So this is why the psalmist is so eager that as he prays for God to teach him from his word, he also prays that God will remove the accretions of falsehood from him. Every false way. And this pertains not just to doctrinal matters and matters of biblical interpretation, but to matters of behavior, matters of how he's to comport himself as a follower of the Lord, every false way. Once again, Spurgeon is worth quoting on this verse. The true born child of heaven, he says, sighs out and cries against a lie, desiring to have it taken away as much as a man desires to be set at a distance from a venomous serpent or a raging lion. Just as you would run away from that venomous serpent, that roaring lion. Spurgeon says, the true born-again believer should look at a lie in precisely the same way. Maybe it is a lie about the teaching of the scriptures. Maybe it's a lie about behavior. Maybe it's a lie that says that you can continue on and sinning willfully in the way that you have been and, and, and face no consequences for it. Whatever the lie is, we should be running away from it. We should be praying earnestly the prayer of the psalmist, put false ways far away from me. I want nothing to do with them, particularly as a teacher. Because we know the, the judgment that accrues to those who teach what is false. This is why not many of you should should presume to be teachers. We know that there will be harsher judgment. We know that there's, 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 there are higher standards. We know that our, our words have significant consequences, sometimes eternal consequences on the lives of our hearers. So how much more for us, especially, put false ways far from me? The fourth way is in verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Now, there are at least two things that we can see clearly in this use of the term way. The first thing is this, that the psalmist makes it clear that there really are two options. There's the way of faithfulness and the way of unfaithfulness there's not there's not a neutral third way to the psalmist 
He's not, he's not deciding to be partially faithful and partially unfaithful. To be partially unfaithful, to decide to be partially unfaithful, would be to decide to be unfaithful, full stop. No, but the psalmist has chosen, he says, the way of faithfulness. There's a, there's a certain binary sense to this, that what he's saying is whatever the faithful way is, whatever God's way is, that's my way. That's the way I'm going to set my life, my family, my teaching. The second key thing to notice here, and it may be obvious from the context, but he makes it explicit in verse 31, is that what this looks like is obedience to the commands of God, obedience to the word of God. In other words, there's there's a biblical way and there's everything else, which is unfaithfulness. Jesus speaks about this repeatedly in his earthly ministry. You remember perhaps in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus addresses the teachers of the law, and he says, what you have done in adding to the word of God is by adding these things and essentially calling them the word of God, you've actually detracted from the word of God. You've actually undermined the word of God. So there is that error, of course, adding to the word of God. Well, there's also the error of not at all taking seriously the teaching of scripture. Both of them can be deadly errors. What does the psalmist enjoin us to? The way of faithfulness. Putting putting God's word before us and having that as our standard. I, I wonder if people would say that about you. I, I, I'm not asking whether they would say that they think you are conservative or liberal. I, I'm asking whether they would say, that, that you're biblical in, in all that you teach, in, in the, the life you live, in the decisions you make, you're walking in the way of faithfulness, which is according to the statutes and rules of God's word. Not, not adding to them, but, but certainly not subtracting from them the way of faithfulness. Now, he, of course, says that he's chosen this way, but it's clear, isn't it, in the context that He's not taking credit for this, not saying I independently out of my own goodwill uh, chose this way of faithfulness. No, it's clear that he's asking for God's help and assistance. He knows he's utterly dependent on God for his spiritual life. That that doctrinal truth is obvious in this text. And yet, nevertheless, he's, he's saying something similar to what the apostles themselves are saying. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You choose this day whom you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. The statutes of God will be our guide. Well, the fifth way. The fifth way is in verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Well, I think the key thing that's so obvious from this statement is that it's the Lord who's causing him to run from beginning to end. And the Lord's doing it by a work on his heart. He, he's, he, he recognizes that the heart is battle line. Uh, the battle for his behavior, the battle for his running 
in the way of the commandments of God. It lies in the heart. And it's God himself who has to move his heart so that he can he can continue to 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 run in God's ways. He can continue to obey faithfully the word of God. And he can continue to live in such a way that he says what Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I've been transformed from the heart. And as I've been transformed from the heart, now the Lord who has transformed my heart, that same Holy Spirit is, is giving me the power to, to obey his commands. And, and, and as we consider this fifth way, I want to now turn your attention finally to the verses that omit that key word. So I think there's a reason that they do. Verses 28 and 31. We've seen the five ways that move us from clinging to the dust to running in the commandments of God with a transformed and a renewed heart and desire to please him. Well, what are, what are these verses tell us? Verses 28 and 31. Let me read them for you again. 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Well, I'll say this. First of all, these verses, both of these verses, reinforce the very real difficulty that the psalmist experienced in life. Now, one of the things that you can't accuse Psalm 119 of being is unrealistic about life. He's very clear about the difficulties he's facing, the struggles. He calls it sorrow in verse 28, shame that he fears in verse 31. But I'll say this as well, that in the midst of this sorrow and shame, which are accented in these verses, in the midst of his walking in the way that takes him to running after the commandments of God, we see that the psalmist also points in each of these verses to the only solution he knows, which is the word of God. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I, I cling to your testimonies. Do not let me be put to shame. This great word of God enlivens our soul, makes us wise unto salvation. And points us ultimately to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the God-man, the eternal one. Not only is the word made flesh, as the scriptures tell us. So there's a sense in which all of this talk about the word of God points us to that word made flesh. But not only is he the word made flesh, but he provides for those who come to him. The ultimate and personal cure for sorrow, for shame, the need for life that the psalmist expresses in verse 25. Oh, and that need that drives everything in verse 32, the enlargement of his heart towards God. Jesus, of course, the Bible tells us, provides these very things through his resurrection power by his Holy Spirit. You know, we see something of this theology earlier in the Old Testament in a well-known, significant text. Hannah, that great saint of old, speaks prophetically when she says this about the Lord. He raises the poor 
from the dust. Verse 25, he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And and as Hannah reminds us, and as the word of God teaches us, God does this work of raising us from the dust by his word. And the way she puts it is this in the last verse of that prophetic hymn that echoes throughout the rest of scripture. He does this by means of this mighty work. He will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed one. Well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for your word. You have given us so much in and through your word, and we praise you for it. Strengthen us even now as we run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.